Hi there, global citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from back in Accra. I'm back for the final leg of my early, like first, whatever, second quarter sojourn back on the continent. And I am speaking with someone who's in a time zone that I am very familiar with, not necessarily the place, but the time zone was definitely. And she went from leading teams at Fortune 500 companies and startups in Silicon Valley to teaching mindfulness and breath work to people of color after experiencing a number of race-related challenges, from racial profiling and harassment by the police to microaggressions in the workplace. Her realization was that mindfulness and breathwork are much more powerful outside of the yoga studio and in the context of our everyday lives. Trained in India and leveraging her toolkit of yoga, meditation, breathwork, sound healing, Reiki, and her Harvard MBA, her goal is to ensure that all people of color have the tools to thrive despite any challenges that race, gender, or sexuality might present. Z Clark, welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. So nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So nice to have you. I'm so happy to see you again. And just some background, folks, we met for the first time in Accra about a month ago, maybe, uh, when she was here on the trip, which I think we'll we'll get into a little bit in our conversation. And she comes to me through a family connection in Colorado. She's currently now in the West, but I'll let, I'll let her talk about that. So let's just jump right in, Z. Where are you from? Where are you local and what is your craft? I grew up in Washington, D.C. I currently newly reside in the state of New Mexico. And my craft is teaching mindfulness and breath work to people of color and more specifically to black people so that we can heal from racism and the challenges that race presents in this country and in the world. Okay, so I, I want to just get right to my why the where. Why, why or how did you end up living where you currently live? Ah, well, a lot of people made uh, what people call them pandemic moves, right? Uh The pandemic was very eye-opening for many people. And if you uh, bring it back to the summer of 2020, George Floyd, a lot of police brutality, a lot of riots in the streets, it was a challenging, challenging moment for many people. And I will say that between challenges that I experienced with police directly uh, in the state of Colorado, as well as challenges that I experienced in the workplace. The stress from all of that was having a negative impact on my emotional health, my mental health, and my physical health. Mm -hmm. And so what I found is that nature is so healing for Mm -hmm. me that when I am somewhere where I can look at something beautiful that is a part of Mother Earth, that's when I feel good. So during that time when people were able to work more remotely, I started experimenting with different locations to be like, what do I feel like in this place? And so I got to New Mexico. I was on a road trip and just visiting a friend. And I had a moment where I felt this like rush of energy in my entire body. And I felt connected to this land here. Mm. And I knew that this is where I was going to find some healing. And so I, you know, working remotely is very much commonplace these days. So I could do it. And I'm so happy looking at mountains every day Mm. and just looking at the moon and the stars. It is, it's what's good for me so that I can be whole Mm -hmm. as I bring my best self to help other people feel whole. Nice. Nice, nice. So what city are you in there? 
I'm in Taos, New Mexico. Taos, nice. Nice. So yes, right in the mountains. It sounds healing and you look very restful and bright and sunny. (laughs) It's doing you well. (laughs) I'll say that much. So Z, tell us a little bit more about, you know, you, you grew up in DC. What, what was your family life? What was your background? How did, how was, how did you go from being a, a young girl in DC to being a Harvard MBA? Wow. I was going to start by saying a lot of pain and struggle. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, I grew up in D.C. Didn't grow up in the like the best neighborhood. It wasn't the worst, but it wasn't the best neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is violence in the streets. Um, at that time, D.C. was the murder capital of America. Mm. Um, I remember my first drive-by shooting when I was seven years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember my last drive-by shooting when I was 17 years old the year that I left. So I bring this up to say that my uh, neighborhood was a significant contrast to the daytime life that I experienced at school. So when I was eight years old, I was able to get a scholarship at an all girls private school in the suburbs of DC in Maryland. And so a lot of extremely affluent families attended this school. I remember the first time that I drove up to the school. I was like, this isn't a school. This is a castle. And I get there and all people have these fancy cars or drivers in uniforms. I was like, what is happening right here? And I remember being the only. I remember being the only Black person. I felt like I was the only poor person. And that was, looking back, that was the first time I ever experienced imposter syndrome, mm. which throughout my entire life. And now it's one of the workshops that I teach to Black employees of companies today. And so Yeah, so I went to private school and experienced just always having to work harder than everybody else, prove myself, prove that I belonged to be there. So, so yeah, just studied a lot, a lot, you know, I I said pain and struggle. That's because I remember that first year at that school, nobody spoke to me. None of my classmates spoke to me for an entire year. And I was the girl in a playground, you know, at recess time, sitting by myself with a journal, just like writing sad poetry. (laughs) Just like sad poetry about being lonely and feeling like I didn't have any friends. And uh, but then you learn to just take care of yourself. You learn to accept that this is the situation and you just keep it moving. I knew my parents told me I was lucky to have this opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so just keeping my head down, like focusing on those books, that's what ended up helping me to be qualified enough to get into Harvard for undergrad. I studied economics there. I also experienced imposter syndrome there. I was like, do I belong here? Like, you know, you thought you were smart in high school, show up at this place with all these Harvard people. And it was like, oh, you were working at NASA since you were 14. Okay, maybe I shouldn't major in math like I had planned because you know way more than me. Um, I got over it. It was good. I majored in economics, studied abroad in Spain, um, started my career in financial services in New York, worked at Citigroup, worked at Amex, went back to Harvard for business school. And that's after that, I moved to San Francisco, did management consulting at Bain. Uh, and then I worked at you know big tech companies and smaller tech companies. And during that time, I was often the only, the only woman in the room, the only woman at the table on a call, the only black person. At one point, I was the only black woman at an entire global company. Wow. And I mean, it was good employees, but still. So that that came with its challenges that kind of led me to where I am today after all of those challenges in the workplace. Right. I can imagine. So in some regards, 
that isolation obviously made you stronger because that's always what happens, right? You you have to, like you said, take care of yourself. I want to get a little bit more into your family's background, right? Because Ooh. your family is not American entirely, right? You have some some roots that are outside of the U.S. And so how or if, first, where from and, and how did that also potentially impact how you, you were socialized? Yeah. So my mother is from the Philippines and my father is of Jamaican descent, though he was born in Panama. So mm. I joke that I am Blasian Tino. Blasian Tino. <laughs> I'm going to take credit for it. Blasian Tino. Blasian Tino. Uh, I've never heard that one. Okay. <laughs> but uh, you know what? According to the police, I'm just black and that's how I'm treated. Okay. And so, so yeah, I mean, so both my parents were immigrants. They came to this country uh, not speaking English the way others did. So I, I remember being little and going to school and being like, I like salmon. And they were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> They're like, it's salmon. Who are you? Where, what planet are you from? Uh-huh. But I would say that having parents that were immigrants, just get, like there was this idea that you have an opportunity. This is an opportunity. We worked hard to get to this country, to get here, to get access to the, in quotes, American dream. And so I was brought up that I kind of like owed it to not only them, to myself and to my ancestors to work really, really hard to take advantage of this opportunity because I had witnessed the poverty of my relatives in their respective countries. And I had, you know, both of my grandparents, grandmothers, I never really knew any of my grandfathers, my grandmothers, neither of them knew how to read or write, Mm. right? So to go from that level of education to okay, two generations later, I went to Harvard. That's like huge. And I'd say it's the the work ethic that I uh, not only witnessed, but also was ingrained in me to make sure that I did not waste this opportunity because I could be like other people in my family that just didn't have, that didn't have that, right? Like where food, so things like food and shelter are not necessarily a given. And, and and when you witness that, especially at a young age, oh, you're going to appreciate and you're going to keep your head down. And you know that you are different than other people, whether it was my, you know, in my neighborhood or at the fancy private schools, like the, the baseline of like, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like that is not a given, especially the bottom of that pyramid. And so I think that that strongly influenced my like motivation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so moving from motivation to inspiration, you were driven, obviously, by it's very immigrant mentality, right? Like work hard, work hard, put your head down, work hard. At one point, did you decide that inspiration needed to be part of your ethic, right? Like so you were I think you you kind of mentioned you were you were motivated by doing this because of that background and in your life experiences. So at what point did it become about inspiration, wanting to do something that meant more to you than than just doing? Mm. I felt for the majority of my career that I was sprinting on a treadmill and not going anywhere. Mm. So I was working hard, working hard, putting in all those hours on the weekends. That was not inspiration. Even my desire to rise up in the ranks of corporate America was not inspiration. It always, scarcity, even in times when I don't, you know, that I, I'm not, like, I'm not homeless, right? Mm -hmm. But like scarcity and experiences of scarcity as a child 
led me to just always have this scarcity mentality. And that's why I was sprinting as fast as possible, even when sometimes I didn't need to. So mm-hmm. when did when did it become inspiration? I would say that I sprinted so fast and worked so hard that I broke myself. I was broken. Mm -hmm. Burnout is real. I I wrote an article on uh, how to avoid BIPOC burnout because when, you know, we all know if you're black in the workplace, you got to, you got to work twice as hard as anybody else just to be treated the same way. And so I, and, and it also kind of tied to my self-worth. I was tying how, how I was treated, what, my title was at work, what my compensation was with my self-worth. And that was not helpful. That just added more stress. So burnout happened and I needed to take a pause in my career. And that's when I went to India. Mm. So I I had already been doing yoga. I'd already been meditating a little bit, but I needed to dig deeper into these practices to make myself feel better. So what happened is I took a couple of years off. I went to India. Uh, I did my yoga teacher training. I became a sound healer with Tibetan singing bowls. I was in Peru with a shaman. I was traveling around the Southwest, getting exposure to indigenous practices. And I will say that in the process of healing myself, when I was starting to feel better, I was like, I didn't even know that life could feel this good because mm-hmm. my baseline was always struggle from, from when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, wait, if I can feel this good after feeling so bad, that's when the inspiration came. Then I was like, other people need to feel this good. Like mm-hmm. if I can help other people feel this way in a world that is tough, let's just be honest, that's, that's the inspiration. And that's when I realized that this is my This is why I'm here. This is why I'm on this planet and particularly to help black people because the struggle not only is real, but has been real for generations. So so I'll say it all started with me trying to help myself because I was not okay. Mm -hmm. When I learned tools that helped me and I was like, not only am I okay, I'm great. That's when I was like, oh, oh, what am I doing? Spending my hours and weekends and evenings working for, you know, in quotes, the man, right? Trying to get some title that like uh, culture, American society says is uh, success. And I'm like, no, no, success for me means that people feel better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Amen to that. I heard that. So um, tell us more about India. Where did you go? I've, I've been and, you know, I went to Goa similarly just, you know, for healing and, and the yoga lifestyle is, is something that I embrace. And so tell us about your India. Tell us how you designed that journey and how that catalyzed you into the sound and, and yoga healing. Yeah. I mean, I'll start with why I went to India. Mm-hmm. I had been practicing yoga. It sounds like you also practice yoga for a long time. Almost all of my yoga teachers were white women. I was living in San Francisco, so perhaps that was representative of the population. I mean, in Oakland, obviously there are black teachers, but I was living in the city of San Francisco, so it just was a little bit more of a commute. And I was tired of hearing white women mm. chant in Sanskrit. It there was something, there was a gap there. There was a I could not receive whatever it was they were giving because there was a lack of authenticity and like trueness. In, in the teachings, even though there, you can, I believe that you can learn from everybody, including the white women yoga teachers. And there's one in particular that I love to this day. And I still go to her classes online because she's amazing. Mm-hmm. That said, 
I wanted to learn from the source. I felt, you know, that game of telephone that you play when you're little, mm-hmm. it's like somebody, tells somebody, tells somebody, somebody. And by the time you get there, it's different. Right. That's what I felt like with yoga. And I was like, you know what? Let me just squash all this noise. Let me, I want to learn from the source. And that's why I went to India. So I did a yoga teacher training in an area called Kerala. Mm-hmm. It is in the South of India. Um, I know you were in Goa. I've also been to Goa. Very fun place. Although I'm like, I'm trying to imagine yoga and go because it felt very party. Yoga felt very. We were on a whole. We were on the whole other side. (laughs) We had to commute to the party side. (laughs) Yes, and the program that I did was all the basic things that you would do in a yoga teacher training. But in addition to that, added to that was Ayurveda. So I don't know if you're Mm -hmm. familiar with Ayurveda. That was um, part of my. Experience. Of, of yours as well. Mm-hmm. For, for those that are not familiar with Ayurveda, um, it is an ancient form of, of healing. In India, you might not go to a Western doctor, you might go to an Ayurvedic doctor, and you will get treated based on on you specifically. So while in Western medicine, it's like, got a headache? All right, everybody take Advil. And oh, by the way, we're going to charge you for the uh, the side effects that are going to happen. We're going to actually sell you more medicine um, because it's a one-size-fits-all treatment. Mm-hmm. And Ayurveda, it's based on you and what you are composed of and the elements. And so what you eat, the exercise that you do, and, and all the things are based on that. So um, I was very interested in Ayurveda. I was interested in holistic healing because, as I mentioned, the burnout that happened was also physical. And I was having physical ailments just as, you know, in, a, in addition to all the mental and emotional stuff, because, you know, chronic stress actually causes all sorts of things that you wouldn't think about heart disease, cancer, diabetes, yes. everything. And I was not okay. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, what should I be eating? Again, this was all to like heal myself. But you know, what was crazy about India, and I had been before, I had been during business school, I went on like a, they call them like treks, and the business school students all go and meet up with the business leaders and sometimes political leaders. And it's like a very structured tour, very different than what I did on this trip. But I, I will say that when you land in a place like Delhi, right, or Mumbai, it's stressful. Like it's, it's, if you're just not used to uh, places that have as large of a population and to be so densely populated. So just the the amount of people in one place, along with the, um, the poverty that you just can't help but seeing if you go anywhere, even if you're in a car with a driver, like mm-hmm. you look outside the window and you see extreme poverty. At first I was like, how is this the place that yoga was, you know, and meditation and all these things? I was like, and then I realized, I was like, oh, if life is this crazy, you need something to maintain your sense of calm, right? And I was like, oh, okay, I, I get it. I get it. But I, I got to know, I got to know the secrets. So, so that's a, that was my India experience. I, I was in a structured program. I also wandered around a little bit by myself. And, um, and then the sound healing, um, I got into sound healing because I got a treatment. Uh, they put the Tibetan singing bowls on your body mm-hmm. and you feel the vibrations. And I went some, I went somewhere. I, I was like, I experienced such a profound level of peace, like this feeling, like if I thought that like life was just struggle, like baseline, you know, my shoulders, um, they just, they naturally come up to my ears. Like ever since I was little, like that's just where I hold stress, like just always. 
And so that's my base. That's just like regular. So to go to this thing and have these vibrations, not only did my shoulders come down, but my entire body, it felt like I was floating, but then like mentally, emotionally, I was in some dream place of complete comfort, love, coexistence, oneness. It was so magical. And I was like, well, I got to learn more about this. Also, I play violin. I'm a musician. Mm -hmm. So the fact that, you know, and I've been learning all these different healing tools, you know, Reiki and all sorts of things, but the sound that the fact that you could heal for me, music has been about expressing emotions and communication. Like to me, the violin is my voice. So to be able to heal, to mm -hmm. heal with sound was like, Oh, oh, okay. And then to be able to get to that, that place that I experienced, I was like, oh, I need to be able to offer this to others. So that's interesting. So you played violin probably for several years through, through your life and still. And so I'm curious about what your experiences had been with that instrument before your healing and after. Was it more of a performative tool? Because, you know, sound is always healing. And so I know and my experience being, I played the trumpet growing up and just a little bit of piano. And I can't say that I ever immersed myself in the music as a musician then, right? But obviously I wasn't, I was still reading music. I wasn't creating music on that level as much as I do more so now in terms of how I hear music and how I experience sound. Similarly, I, the sound, the bowls, I have them, I play them, I put them on. So, so can you share a little bit more about that, the difference, or is there a difference between the before you and the after you with your instrument? Mm. I will say me and the violin have had phases. Mm. I, I didn't choose to play the violin. I started when I was five. I okay. did not. That was not my decision. I actually wanted to play the flute, but at the DC Youth Orchestra, shout out to the DC Youth Orchestra because <laughs> I am so but at the DC orchestra, my my hands and my arms are too short. They told me my arms are too short, and if I need if I wanted to play any like for the flute. So, but there was a spot in the violin class. So my mom was like, "Okay, she's going to do violin," and that's how it happened. Oh, wow. And then I just, you know, my parents were like, "You're going to practice." They were like, I "Grew up in a very strict household, so the violin didn't really feel like a choice." Yeah, especially in the early years. But as I played more, it became kind of like an identity. It was like an extension of my arms. Like mm -hmm. that is what I do. I mm -hmm. play violin. That is what I do. And then back to um, achievement and self-worth. Then it became a source of a lot of stress because of competitions, I, you know, I and and performances. And, you know, I got into Juilliard. That mm -hmm. was like a long time ago. But, it, you know, I didn't. I was stressed out. If I had the breathing techniques that I teach now, mm -hmm. then I probably would have been a professional violinist. But instead, I would get up in front of everybody and 50% of the time, I would do amazing. I would just crush it. It'd be the most beautiful thing ever. Technically, you know, perfect. And 50% of the time, I just would not even remember what would come next. I would freeze and then mm -hmm. just have to like give up and walk off stage. It was like embarrassing. And so, uh, so I share this to say that breathing techniques are very helpful, but it was stress. It was achievement must do on the classical music world is like pretty cutthroat, pretty mm. cutthroat, um, especially the violinists. You know, there are people in an orchestra, you said you play trumpet, the brass people, super chill, the percussionists, I love them. Upright string bassists, amazing. Violinists have sticks up there. I'm not going to say it, Right. And so the violin was like very stressful to me, but I did start to love it because as I mentioned, it became just part of my identity. Sure. And classical music, 
there's a way, there's a right way to do it, right? Like this was written and, mm. and, and there, you know, there's some, some leeway in terms of what they, what the term is musicality and interpretation. But at the end of the day, like there are notes on a page with a rhythm and, uh, and there's a right way and there's a wrong way. I mean, so anyway, and I'll say that my uh, evolution in violin uh, became when I started improvising. So mm-hmm. when I started playing with bands, when I started expanding outside of the classical realm, and then I would just play whatever I felt like playing, whatever sounded good to me, whatever came from my heart and my spirit. Yeah. And so playing with a band or a singer songwriter or whoever, where there is no, there is no plan. I don't know what I'm going to play. They don't know what I'm going to play. I am, I am receiving what should be played from, I'm not going to say it because I don't really, everyone has different beliefs, right? But I'll just say a higher source, a source outside of me, spirit, source energy, God, like various words, but that, so, so for me, uh, my evolution with violin was not about the sound healing. That evolution happened even before mm-hmm. I even got into sound healing. And I will say that then eventually I just started playing violin to speak, right? Like, you know how some people might journal. Mm-hmm. I'm really sad. I'm really happy today. And you write all that down. I will pick up my violin and express however I am feeling. Mm. And so I, to this day, I don't, I don't use the violin, the violin for healing. I use the violin for expression. Um, mm. I think the violin could be used for healing. I actually once tried to do a combo of sound healing and, um, and violin and, and I got mixed feedback. Some people like loved it and other people were like the violin is triggering. It brings back memories mm. of this, that, right. you know, right. okay, well, I don't want to bring that in. So I never did it again. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is a, a different vibration. And yeah, in terms of how it, yeah, you would hear it. Oh, but that's interesting. I love that creativity. <laughs> so let me ask you this. You travel quite a bit and you're, you're in different crafts. So I want to ask you to share something called glocal speak. So we want to hear what you hear. I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that's a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you have come to value it as a local speak. And, and that's any, any local experience, wherever you, you feel local. Yeah. Well, for me, it is a phrase that is very, very, that has been very powerful, impactful for me as an individual. And I feel like has the power to be extremely impactful for I'll just say black people and more specifically black women. And it is this today. I choose me today. I choose me. Let me explain why. Because we're never choosing ourselves. I was not brought up to choose me. I was brought up to please other people. And then as a black woman, it's like constantly taking care of other people. And I, you know, the concept of like local, right. That's it's local as in Black people here, black people in the States, but it's global because it's black, black women everywhere are doing a lot for other people. And, and that's out of love. That's out of love. And because we can also because some people expect it too, right? Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of that. Yeah. Um, and so the mantra today, I choose me just means so much to me because I'm giving myself permission to choose me. And I am not a bad person if I take my day to myself or my hour of quiet time or, you know, choose to spend a little bit more money to get a massage this quarter because I, because otherwise it's like, oh, that money could be spent on my relatives or on this or on that. So today I choose me. And I like whenever I have a decision to make, I just repeat that to myself. 
and allow that to guide me. Nice. Nice. That's a great one. That is that is local to many hearts or should be and could be local to many hearts. So I like that one a lot and uh, across the globe. So let's talk more about how now you've come back, you've, you've done your journey abroad, you've studied these different modalities on healing. So now you've come back as a healer. So now how are you, how did you apply that? How are you applying that as a way of living and as a means of supporting yourself? How, how is that? What are the mechanics around that? Yeah, well, I got back to the States after travels. I moved to Denver, Colorado, very random. I didn't know anybody in Denver when I got there. Well, I had a couple like friends said, you should meet my friend sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But I was listening to my intuition, which has been something that I have been honing in on more and more so as I have some quiet space to really listen and receive these messages. So I got Denver. I got to Denver. I started teaching mindfulness. I started uh, leading sound bath experiences. And the people that were coming to my classes were predominantly white women. And, and I love everybody. I love everybody. But I wasn't feeling as fulfilled in teaching this particular population because I'm looking around noticing that Black people need these tools so much more, right? But you know, there are medical, there's medical research that shows that discrimination is a direct cause of the higher rates of high blood pressure in Black people, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, there, and all of the symptoms of chronic stress, Black people have higher rates of all of these things, diabetes, heart disease, et cetera. And so I just was feeling like I wanted to spend my time helping people of color. And so then I started leading BIPOC-only uh, meditation sessions. I started just teaching teaching us. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, money is is a real thing. Um, and I, <laughs> right? So I got a job again, a, a day job mm -hmm. in America. And and I'll say that it was very challenging, especially being the only black person in leadership. Uh, at a public company during George Floyd summer. And so as a black person, and, and I think a lot of people that were working at predominantly white in, you know, places, organizations at that time, were finding that you know, our allies were leaning on us to do the work. Can you help with the talent acquisition team to help them hire more black people? Can you work with the training team on the implicit bias training? Can you lead a conversation on race in America and share your racial traumas with the entire company? Right. And so a lot, a lot of microaggressions like mm. when I see you. I don't see color. And I'm just like, I don't even I'm tired. You know, I'm just right. like continuing to watch black people get shot by police. And I'm like, I don't when you see me, you don't see color. You know who sees color? The police see color. And, you know, and I just kept getting brought back to a couple of years ago. Um, I was at a grocery store and somebody called the police on me and some, an employee at the grocery store called the police and said that I stole deli meat. And then the police came and it was this big ordeal. Mm -hmm searching for deli meat and I'm a vegan. So it was very hard for them. And there are hours and hours of searching every crevice of my car. And I was moving and camping and a lot of stuff in the car for them to find the deli meat that the vegan stole. And, and wow. so, you know, I'll just say that like, it, it just kept building up and building up and building up all of this stress of being black in America. And Colorado was a place that I, you know, if, if, I'll name the cities I've lived. DC, grew up there. Boston for college and grad school, New York, Brooklyn, right? San Francisco, 
These are all places where white people know better to say things out loud. I'm not saying there's not racism there. It's just more subtle, but they won't say things to your face. And so in Colorado, both at work and outside of work, people would say things to me that would be triggering. And I was having to dig deeper, deeper into my breathing practices, into my mindfulness practices so I could lower my heart rate so that I could calm myself so that I would not experience the stress that, you know, was being triggered constantly. And so, especially in the workplace, I was using these practices like during meetings, after meetings, just being so upset. And, and that led me to, I had a lot of friends that were also having the same problem. Like they were the only where they were. So I was sharing with them breathing techniques that I do when people, you know, say things that are offensive to me or do things. And that led me to create the series of workshops, reclaiming flow workshops that help that are tools. I take the practices that I learned in India and I apply them to real life situations at work. So I teach a class called mindfulness to heal from microaggressions at work. I teach one called countering imposter syndrome. You know, the first like week of work, a boss said to me, pulled me aside, closed the door. I was like, oh man, this is serious. He goes, I just want you to know I didn't hire you because you're black. <sighs> now, you know, I two degrees from Harvard. And this was not like a job. I was not, this was not a job that I was like, this is challenging. I, you know, I just like, right. And, and so if somebody had said that to me 20 years ago, I would have been like, oh my God, I'm a diversity hire. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough to do this job. Right. So imposter syndrome is real when people say things to you. Like, and in fact, I have had said to me in other places, are you the new diversity hire? Right. Mm. So Countering imposter syndrome. I have one called uh, bringing my whole self to work because, you know, this is a podcast that you can't see me, but I got, I got curls. I got lots of curls and I didn't know what these curls looked like until I was 35 years old. And Ooh. why? Because I was uh, taught from, you know, early in my career that it was unacceptable to have natural hair. I started my career in financial services in New York City. Okay. Ask anybody in the, when did I graduate? I don't know early 2000s. Nobody had natural hair in New York City in financial services. Zero people. You would not get hired. You would not get promoted. And obviously now there are laws around this, but bringing my whole self to work is not just about your hair. It's about what did you do this past weekend? It's about what do you believe? I had a client and I was talking about bringing my whole self to work. And she's like, oh, when somebody asked me what I did last weekend, I just go nothing, even though I went to trap yoga, but I didn't want to have to explain what trap music was. And I just didn't want to get into it. So I just said, nothing, right? So how can we be mindful of bringing our whole selves to work? And also like code switching, code switching became like breathing to me in terms of like just something that you without thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And so how can we more intentional about when we code switch and when we don't code switch mm -hmm. I on uh, rejuvenation from black fatigue because we're tired. And when you are tired, you can't think straight, you get irritable and so many things cause us to be tired. You're not going to perform at your best at work or in life. Right. Right. And so I teach tools on how to rejuvenate um, when you are exhausted. And then lastly, mindfulness and self-care, just like how can we be intentional about things like morning and evening routines and setting a foundation so that you are solid when these challenging things happen. So I teach these workshops to usually like Black or Latinx or BIPOC employee resource groups at leading companies around the world to help their communities heal because 
it's a long journey. And while we have implicit bias classes now that are required, and since, you know, the summer of, of, of George Floyd in 2020, um, a lot of companies are making public statements about what they're going to do. And many of them have action items, and, and some of them have done them, some of them haven't. But it's just going to be a long journey. So while we wait for everybody to be less racist, we need to take care of ourselves. Today, I choose me. And right. And so that's kind of that's what I do today. I feel really grateful for the pain that led me here and that because these tools are amazing. And and it really I feel so great when someone writes me an email and says, girl, I did that breathing technique when somebody did this to me. Call me the wrong name. Call me the name of the other black girl in the office. And like and I felt better. And then I was able to address them in a, a manner that was effective in communicating the problem without them feeling like I was an angry black woman. That's success mm. for now. Mm-hmm, for now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like that. So how do you, how do you get the word out? How did you, so you went from, you, you got a job and then you decided enough of that. I'm doing this as my way of life. So how, you know, is this where the Harvard MBA came into play in terms of the marketing, the networking? How how have you built the business around your work? Mm. You know, the the sad thing about my business is that my business is needed because people are getting treated terribly. Mm. So selling, like convincing somebody that they need this is not that hard because they could tell you immediately all the terrible things that happened to them at work this week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Harvard MBA business experiences. Sure. Like I am like, I learned business strategy in business school. Like networking is like business school is helpful for networking. I did enterprise sales where I sold to companies in a couple, a few of my last jobs. Like I, I have been in this like B2B space for quite a bit now. So I understand sales funnels and then how all of that works. So I'd say, yes, I have, um, I feel very thankful to have uh, some of the tactical, practical business skills just to start a business and to run a business. And, And I'm a bit of a weirdo unicorn person with my MBA and my um, healing. Right? <laughs> You're like, you did what? Who? Right? Like you'll, you'll meet, you can meet yoga teachers and meditation teachers and you can meet Harvard MBAs, but I don't think you ever meet like somebody that is both. Hmm. And, and, and I think that that actually just helps me to be better at what I do, but also helps me to bridge that gap where I show up and I teach these workshops and I'm like, I've been in your shoes. Mm -hmm. I was there. I was sprinting on that treadmill, like not that long ago. And so I get it. And I was in India and these practices have been used for thousands of years and they can help you. So, so that's kind of, I'd say I'm bringing and even like using my breathing practices in managing stressful situations, right? Like that's even in my work today, running a business, Sure. Guess what? It doesn't just because it's a mindfulness and breathwork business doesn't mean it doesn't have stress. Sure. And so uh, to bring that into my daily interactions as yeah. well has been super powerful. Yeah, 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 yeah. So speaking of, I always like to ask, what is your favorite or one that you practice mindset hacks? So this is something you can imagine, one that you practice or one that you know of. Yeah, I'm really big on reframing things because sometimes life seems really hard. And so if you can reframe it, it's just different. You show up differently. So here is the reframing. 
Have you ever been like, I have to do this. I have to do that. I have this long list of things that I have to do. Well, the reframing is I get to. If you write down all the things you have to do and then you write, I get to do X, I get, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like I'll give you an example, friend of mine having to go pick up her kids, right? Like I I have to go pick up my kids. Well, she gets to go pick up her kids, Mm -hmm. right? She has kids. A lot of people don't, they wanted kids and couldn't have them. She has a car. She can go. Yeah. Her kids are at school. They can go to school. And then she gets to have quality time in the car with her children, right? I get to just reframes everything and can make a challenging situation, uh, one filled with gratitude. Yeah, I love that. You know, lists lists are good and then lists are not so good. But if you write the list in a certain way, then it's just just like you said, it's a fun adventure. So I like that. (laughs) Z, would you mind sharing a couple minutes of a breath work exercise just so that we kind of get a sense of some of some of the work that you do? Yeah, sure. I will tell you, let's see, which one? Anxiety. Mm, Okay. Good. Mm -hmm. And anxiety, sometimes to the point when it's really bad, you can't even sleep, right? Like, and and I'll just give you an example of when this happened to me in Colorado. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh, life. Somebody wrote, fuck you on my car. Oh, wow. I rented an Airbnb mountain cabin in Colorado. I was with a black woman, a friend of mine, and it was Christmas Day. And I woke up in the morning. We woke up and, you know, we had a lovely breakfast. And then we're going to go for a hike. And I go out into the private driveway. And I saw that somebody had written fuck you in large letters on my win- like rear, rear window. And so... Yeah, I called the Airbnb host. I was like, are hate crimes a thing here in this area? And he was like, no, I'm shocked. I'm going to call the police. And I'm like, don't call the police. The police are so scary. Yeah, right. The police were going to come and do a stop by. It's Christmas Day. They did not. So we're kind of waiting for them. They never came. They drove by like as in they didn't even come up the driveway and they said it was a domestic matter and that we could choose to press charges against mysterious person because they wouldn't do any investigating. So the question was whether to sleep there that night or just leave and be like, okay, this is not safe. And ultimately we decided to stay. Mm -hmm. So I bring this up to say that I'm lying there in bed and I can't sleep. And I'm like, what if this person comes back? Like, what if they're like a bunch of them? And like, my mind was like, like all of the what ifs. We're driving me crazy and I could not sleep. And at that moment, I did something called the four, seven, eight breath. Mm-hmm. And so if you have ever experienced anxiety about whatever, whatever, it could be about anything and all the what ifs are happening and your brain will not shut up the four, seven, eight breath. It involves inhaling for a count of four, holding for a count of seven and exhaling for a count of eight. So let's do it together. Okay. Um, I invite you to sit up straight, shoulders back and down. We're going to breathe in and out through the nose and we're going to inhale for four, three, two, one, hold for seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, exhale for eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Again, inhale for four, three, two, one. One, hold for seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Exhale for eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. And relax and breathe normally. So you might do this for more times than that because usually what happens is eventually you'll just fall asleep. Mm -hmm. But doing 
repetitions of this allows you to relax. Um, it stimulates your parasympathetic nervous system. So mm -hmm. if your sympathetic nervous system is the fight or flight reaction, the like, I'm under stress, I'm triggered, like I felt that night trying to fall asleep. The parasympathetic nervous system is our rest and digest nervous system, our ability to find calm. And so that's, yeah, that's, that's a favorite of mine. Nice. That's a very easy one, folks. So You've got a teaser of some of these coursework. You obviously can find her on her website, which will be in the show notes and a lot of other juicy tidbits from our conversation. So I want to ask you, what's next? So what is your now and what is next? I know you have some interesting things on the horizon. What's what's next for, for Z? Hmm. I'm currently still just teaching a lot of workshops um, mm -hmm. to companies. However, I do have a book coming out and I told you this right before we got on, but I found out recently that the date is uh, at the end of December. I think it's Yay. December 27th. We get it this year. Hooray. Uh, I am book. It's called Black People Breathe, and it is a collection of mindfulness and breathwork tools for Black people to heal from racism. And so I every chapter is a theme of something that an experience that Black people have. One of them is bearing witness to the assault on Black lives and mindfulness tools to decide, should I watch this footage? And if I do watch it, what can I do to take care of myself both during watching it and mm -hmm. after? I have a chapter called Shopping While Black, where I share the grocery store incident I shared with you, mm -hmm. or another chapter called R-E-S-P-E-C-T at work, because a lot of stuff happens at work. And so, you know, these, these themes of things that happen to us, and then I offer tools that you can use, because in my mind, it's kind of like a prescription from a doctor, right? Yeah. Like when you have a headache, take Advil or, you know, some ibuprofen or something, right? Well, when you are angry, you can do this particular breathing technique, just like we just did. If you have anxiety, you could do the four, seven, eight breaths. So mm -hmm. I'm really excited about that. I also plan on coming up or uh, launching an online course early next year. So that's kind of in the works. Yeah. And a few other fun tidbits that are in the media realm that I, I will leave to be a teaser secret nice. um, for 20. Nice, 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 nice. And I think that's great to know that you have some online offerings, particularly for people who are outside of the U.S., right? You know, the mm -hmm. diaspora, we have varied experiences, but we are, as you say, I love that you say Black people, you know, it, it's not about the geography necessarily is that the Black experience globally is very similar. Even being in a country that is mostly Black, there are there are, there are situations where you feel the same kinds of entitlement. You know, it is the colon, colonization's um, vestiges that are around us. So, so yeah, I look forward to seeing and, and also helping to promote your work throughout the diaspora. So this, I hope, is a good starting point for that. Yeah, um, actually, and speaking of the online stuff, mm -hmm. I um, I recently launched a YouTube channel and I'm putting a lot of these guided practices of the breathing techniques, like even the 4781 on my YouTube channel, Z Clark, and also on Instagram and TikTok, Z Clark Breathe. So I'll, I'll be, I have put and will continue to be adding guided breathing practices on this Nice, channel. nice, 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 nice. So everyone, you can obviously check that out on the show notes, but Z Clark, that's Clark with the E and Z E E. All right, cool. So we've talked about you and your work, and we know that there's a lot of mindfulness in your work. We want to know a little bit more about the you that is not the person who is working or healing. So I like to ask my guests if you are a reader, a watcher, or a listener, and what are some of your favorite reads, watches, or listeners? Ooh, okay. I, I, I'm a combination, mm -hmm. so I'll just say... Uh, 
podcasts. Balanced Black Girl is one of my favorite podcasts. Nice. Like she just brings these amazing guests and talk about real stuff and offering tools and, and things that we can do to handle the things that happen to us. So yeah, that, I mean, I'll say books. Um, let's see. I am a reader. Oh, few, so many. Um, recently, Octavia Rahim. She is an amazing uh, yoga teacher, particularly focused on the restorative sort of yoga. And so Pause, Rest, Be is a book she came out with. Oh, this I've heard week. of it. Yeah. yeah. Pause, Rest, Be. Mm-hmm. And then Adrienne Marie Brown is kind of like my hero. I don't know if you know her, Adrienne Marie Brown, but Pleasure Activism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in that book. I mean, so many things to learn in that book, but one of the things is um, that no is a complete sentence. So I believe she probably was uh, someone who came up in that program on Netflix about pleasure. Mm. I don't know if you've seen it, but there is a shop and I'll put that. Oh, there's a program and I saw that and it's particularly focused on women and women's pleasure. And so it, it goes through the anatomy, the psychology, all of those things. But um, I feel like she may have been referenced in that. But yes, pleasure mm. activism. And it kind of also rings in my ear because I had a guest, Nadia Swabi, who also in the UK was part of a movement, you know, with black feminists on this whole pleasure activism mm. Side of things, so yes, the um, the the connections start to to connect and, and make a lot of sense. Okay, those are great tips. We'll put those in the show notes for our listeners to find out more. Uh, Z, this has been so lovely. I'm so happy we got a chance to catch up again and and talk more about your work and what's coming up for you. As we get ready to sign off for today, do you have any last words for our listeners? Hmm. I guess what I want to leave folks with is that. Taking a deep breath can just change the whole game, mm-hmm. like no matter what is happening in your life. So just always remember to breathe, which mm-hmm. is, you know, sounds like obviously, but when you're intentional about the deep breath, it, it's it's a game changer. It absolutely is. I, I absolutely agree. And I, I want to just add to that. It's also taking the breath and feeling the breath because I think mm-hmm. you take it in, but there's also this kind of concept of, and I do this often in my breath work, is like sending the breath everywhere within me yes. and then pulling it out from everywhere within me to feel like fully mm. cleansed. So yes, taking a breath matters. All right, folks. Thank you so much, Z. This has been another episode of the podcast. You can catch us each and every Tuesday with a new episode at localcitizenspod.com and wherever you get your podcasts. And please send us a note, recommend a guest, leave a review. It helps other people find the podcast. And until next time, bye for now. <laughs>